You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, I talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is thriving with ocean life above and below the surface. And if you've been listening locally, there have been lots of sightings of whales in the region. Out at the Point Reyes Lighthouse, people have been talking about orcas and humpbacks and grays. It's definitely a very exciting time off the coast right now. So today I have a live guest in this studio. I'm really excited to learn more about this area that is very special off our coast. I have Rich Burns with us, who is with the California Coastal Monument. And this is a very special place, the entire stretch of California that we're going to learn more about today. It comes from the Ukiah office and dropped in here to Point Reyes today. So Rich, welcome. You're live on the air in studio. Jennifer, good afternoon. Thank you. And also thank you, too, for uh, putting out the initial invite for me to be here and talk about the California Coastal National Monument. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. There's so many special things about California for so many giant superlatives, and we have four national marine sanctuaries, we have national parks, we have state parks, and there is a, this California Coastal Monument that I think not that many people know too much about, so I'm really excited. I invited you because I want to learn more, and I'm involved with coastal education, so this is fantastic. First of all, what is the California Coastal Monument? What division in the government is it part of? It is actually a part of the Department of Interior, and it's managed by the Bureau of Land Management. And it's actually the entire stretch of the California coast from the border of Oregon all the way down to Mexico. So it's basically 1,100 miles long. And it includes the originally, and this is what makes this really interesting and unique, originally it was the rocks and islands off the coast of California, uh, basically from mean high tide out 12 nautical miles. So the monument was originally established to not have a mainland base to it of any kind. However, this past year, as I think a number of people know, uh, President Obama signed the proclamation, which added 1,665 acres to the California Coastal National Monument, the only mainland piece currently outside of Point Arena, California, in South Mendocino County. So anyway, that's what makes this very, very interesting, because you're right at the very beginning. It's probably one of the most seen and least recognized of all the federal national monuments and parks across the nation. Everybody talks and marvels at all the rocks and islands off. I can't tell you how many times they make drives down Highway 1 and see people taking pictures of those, not recognizing that it's actually a monument. And it uh, has special protections in place for that. Yes, it does. As a matter of fact, the plan that was written for the monument, which was basically completed around 2004, established four major themes, one of it being habitat protection as far as for the seabirds, pelagic life, 
and I guess you'd call it, you know, pinnipeds and, and other marine mammals who use the offshore rocks and islands. In addition to that, it's also science and research. That was another big element of the monument. And then uh, basically preserving heritage, because it's kind of interesting when you look at the California coast and, and such, you, you have cultural resources out there. And then last but not least is recreation, which is also being looked at as, as a part of it. But really, for the most part, until the acquisition, well, not really the acquisition, until it was actually moved to the mainland, there really couldn't be a whole heck of a lot of recreation except for people in kayaks and those things who were out venturing around the rocks and islands. In terms of the history, going back to the beginning, is this the only coastal monument in the United States, or how did how did it come to be? It came to be really through uh, work on behalf of Congressman Sam Farr down in basically the, the I want to call it the, well, Santa Cruz, um, Monterey area. And he, and at the time the BLM state director, Ed Hasty, had talked and, and really looked at the rocks and islands along the coast and discovered that there are some significant resources there. And unfortunately, being that they really were just out there, they weren't withdrawn from a lot of different purposes. For example, mineral exploration, that was something they were open for different rights of ways things, like if people wanted to go out there and put up sail towers or signs or those particular things, the rocks and islands were open for all of that. And so you had this kind of people looking at this thing thinking, well, you know, if if this is as stunning as it is, as we all recognize it to be, shouldn't there be some form of protection put on these rocks and islands? And that was really how it all began, was really the work of Congressman Sam Far down south, like I said, and then Ed Hasty, who was the state director for BLM at the time, to start putting some parameters as to what this can be. And then Congressman Farr carried it forward. And in 2000, it became, it was signed by President Bill Clinton, again through proclamation, to be a national monument for the entire length of the California coast. And again, from it's the rocks and islands above mean high tide, uh, just off from the mainland, up until again this year, 12 miles out. 12 miles out. So there's some rocks that go 12 miles out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you find different features, reefs and things that actually do extend 12 miles out. So when you really look at the map of them, and, and really there's too many rocks and islands and features to count, it works out to an estimate, we think, around 20,000. Wow. Acreage-wise, it's not super huge. But when you really look at the volume and the extent of it, it's about 20,000 features, the majority of which are basically from Monterey Bay North. And so geologically, um, any background on why just Monterey Bay North is just, just the plate tectonics of our region? Pretty much that's it. And it's very interesting, too, because when you mention that, I've been involved with the acquisition, original acquisition of the Sternetta Public Lands back would have been, we started that one about 1998. And to this day, you have certain things that I remember from just over, what now, I'm going to say about 16 years, that used to be features of the mainland, but just through coastal uplifting and erosion and just geologic situations, they have become basically now some of them features of the National Monument. They're no longer touching the mainland. I bet you're going to get more of those with erosion on the rise and sea level rise. And I, I think wave action. I, I, I would agree with that. We're, we're seeing it as we speak. Interesting. Now, it has this uh, designation as a national monument. And are there specific uh, regulations about the use of these? You're talking about protecting them from signs and cell towers. But can people access them if they do have the ability to get? I know some of these rocks are very accessible, especially at low tide. 
That is a really good question. And when the monument was first established and established for recreation, again, it was mean high tide out. So really, to get to most of the features, unless it was a minus tide, you really weren't going to be able to walk out there very easily. So there was no real public access. And I think if there was anything that was limiting about the California Coastal National Monument, it was the fact that it was sort of you can see it, but you really couldn't touch it. And so to experience the monument fully was through photographs. I mean, that was it. People, like I said, in kayaks could get out there. That's what made the expansion over there at outside of the city of Point Arena such a significant piece of the monument because now a person can go out there. They can stand on the California Coastal National Monument. They can look out at the, you know, at the Pacific Ocean right there. It's the coastal bluffs. Most of Point Arena lands are coastal bluffs. You have a little bit of beach just north of the Garcia River. However, with that, you, you can see and experience the whales just right up there off of the end. The thing that, that I want to mention, too, with regard to location, for those who aren't really aware, I, I feel that where the monument is located is actually what I would describe as the elbow of California. When you're at the furthest southeast corner, or, or excuse me, southwest corner of the monument, and you're looking out into the ocean, basically you're looking at ocean. The town of Point Arena is back behind you to the east, probably a good half a mile, maybe three-quarters of a mile. And everything from there, the whole sweeping views until you look north where you can see the, you know, basically the, the state going north, is all water, open water. And so that gives you a really interesting perspective. And you kind of look at that wondering what Native Americans thought when they were there, seeing this, this incredible expanse of ocean right there. And you can see whales fairly close. They, they come right there around that turn and just continue up the rest yeah, of the way. Yeah, it's very similar to Point Reyes uh, at the tip, that, where the Point Reyes Lighthouse is, in terms of that expanse all around. And you have to make these little landmarks, these whales do, before they continue on their journey, so they're good hot spots there. I can really relate in terms of talking about the ability to really relate with people more when you have a sense of place to stand on. Working for Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which is all underwater, pretty hard to get to, is really difficult. And we communicate mostly about it through video and f exhibits and photographs. And we, as you were talking about that, I was like, I can relate to that. It's been a while. I've um, been working on how to bring that place to the people. Well, and, and the thing I can say, too, that, that's been really phenomenal from where I sit and looking at this is, again, a lot of the monument expansion really was grassroots efforts on behalf of the citizens of Mendocino County and especially the people in and around uh, the town of Point Arena, and then the lighthouse and those up and, and down the coast. The reason why I mention it, you know, in those particular terms is that if it wasn't for them, this wouldn't have expanded the way that it did. And having that sense of place where you can physically touch, I mean, is really what they're looking at and really embracing. So in terms of the Stornetta lands, this, so this was recently designated, brought into the California Coastal Monument this past spring. And What's the history there? Those were originally private lands that were agriculturally used? Yes, that's exactly what it was. There was a small section of BLM land that was just east of Highway 1 up there that was um, went along one of the bluffs. And the Stornetta family had actually acquired the ranch and from, I can't remember exactly whom, but it's probably too far back to even worry about, but around 1917. And so the family had been out there farming and uh, basically growing peas, beans, potatoes. 
And then they had a cattle operation as well. There's the Sternetta side of the family that has a dairy, and they're actually out there as well. But the particular Sternetta brothers who owned and operated the ranch were really into more of the beef cattle. So they used a lot of the coastal bluffs there for their beef cattle operation. And did they stop operating as a ranch recently? or No. As a matter of fact, that was one of the things that made this really, really unique. The family had been looking at a way uh, – you had three sisters, not to get too much into the history of the family. You had three sisters, of which case – um, they were interested in a conservation landowner, but they were also not interested in wanting to give up the agricultural practices that the family were doing. So they had actually a number of different entities that they were looking at, BLM not being one of them. And the reason why basically BLM got it was kind of an interesting fluke. I had a very good friend of mine who has since retired from the agency who had a friend that worked for um, basically uh, it was conservation lands – Oh, conservation lands something. Can't remember exactly. But they were in a bar in Sacramento, and they were drinking, as sometimes good things happen. And they mentioned that they had this property on the coast, and they were looking for a conservation buyer. So they approached this friend of mine who basically said, you know, BLM would be interested in this because we actually can make things work where you can maintain certain agricultural practices that are compatible with the landscape and still be able to have public lands that would be available for people to go. So they actually got me in touch then with the Sternetta family and then the rest of the people who were involved. And it took about, I want to say, close to five years of, of really working very you know, diligently with the family and with those who are interested and then the city of Point Arena and other entities and advocacy groups to pull this together. That's fantastic. I'm talking with Rich Burns from the California Coastal Monument, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. And right now we're talking about a new area that folks can visit on the coast up at Point Arena, the Stornetta Lands, that have just recently been added to the California Coastal Monument. And this is extremely significant for that region because you go up to Point Arena and there's not a lot of places to go for a hike. Um, you know, you can go to the Point Arena Lighthouse and enjoy the views and the vistas. But now this is a significant piece of uh, property right on the coast with so much beautiful access to enjoy the birding and the wildlife and the, and the wildflowers. But you mentioned that the, um, the land is still being used for agriculture as well, because I didn't notice that when I was up there. Correct. You still have the cattle operation that is operated by the Stranetta Brother Coastal Ranch. Mm -hmm. And then they actually run about oh, 200 head approximately, and they move them around. One of the things that's very unique about this, and we worked very closely with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you have some key threatened and endangered species on the property, one of being the barren silver spot butterfly, which when you look at it and see pictures of it, it, it's hard to distinguish from other different butterflies. But the fact of the matter is, is that it goes in and around Point Arena, and that's just about it. Not too terribly many other mm. populations known. And the thing that the grazing actually does, and again, this was actually proved through work with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, is that livestock keep a lot of the grass species that more or less come up and don't allow the violet that the butterfly needs to survive to be exposed. So thereby, the cattle there, keeping the grass at a fairly low level, actually allow for the violet to be visible. The butterfly uses the violet, and the species basically goes on. And 
they haven't really, we've been doing monitoring, my staff has, with different transects, and the numbers have been about the same. But the fact is, is that we're afraid, as, as U.S. Fish and Wildlife pointed out, if you have no grazing at all, that'll probably be detrimental to the butterfly species overall. Too much is also going to be the same. So the thing that we kind of bumped into here was that the numbers of cattle being out there apparently seem to be approximately about right. And we're not really seeing from the grazing practices really any serious degradation. There's red-legged frog habitat out there as well, and so we have those areas that are pretty well maintained for the red-legged frog, and the livestock don't seem to be of issue there. And then in addition to that, there's mountain beaver, pointerina mountain beaver, which is also another threatened and endangered species, and those areas have been protected as well. So it seems to be a very good arrangement and relationship. And I guess the one thing I do want to highlight is the Sternetta family in general, because they are incredibly good stewards and always had been. And I think a person can truthfully say and make the statement that if it wasn't for their stewardship, I'm not sure how many people would have been interested in this place. But their stewardship really kept the species, uh, you know, there and allowed for the economic to come into the area. And it's phenomenal. I mean, it really is. So it, it all works and fits. Point Arena is on Mendocino County, right? Correct. So Mendocino Land Trust, did they have any interest in working with that family and that property? or They have. And we've worked with Ann Cole and the Mendocino Land Trust now. They're a wonderful organization to work with and partner with. And right now we're working with them very closely on a number of different projects. Um, the one being is an app that you could get for your phone that more or less talks about where you are along the coast. They're working on that one. And another one is with Coastwalk, and we're working through them on the whole coastal trail that basically starts in Oregon and ends up down in Mexico. And one of the key pieces with regard to Coastwalk was the fact that once you left Manchester State Beach to the north, you had to walk down Highway 1 inland until you got basically south of the town of Point Arena. Now what you really have is that a person can be at Irish Beach, which is north of Point Arena by about 11 miles, and you could actually walk on Manchester State Beach, come off of Irish Beach, and then walk on Manchester State Beach, which links up with the BLM lands, all the way into the city of Point Arena and basically beyond. So that whole stretch of coast, which was at one time unavailable for hiking, now is totally available. That's exciting. So where can you access it from downtown Point Arena? Right at City Hall. You can just park in the parking lot at City Hall, and there's a pass-through there at the fence. We're working right now for better signage and a kiosk and things, and those are some things that we're hopefully going to have in place when we have a Discover the Coast event on July 19th of this year. But right now, a person could park at City Hall. They can go out through the back of the property, and there will be a pass-through on the fence, which basically takes them right out onto the public lands. In fact, there's a grassy area that we have people park on, which is actually BLM. That came when we got the phase of the Cypress Abbey property for, well, we got that first phase, which is actually in the city limits of Point Arena, and it does provide for parking and things like that, and we're going to have maps and brochures and things eventually. But, yep, right out the fence, right along the top of the harbor along the coastal bluffs, and then just on around the corner and all the way up to Irish Beach. When I had the chance to go up there, which I think was October last year, and hiked along the bluffs, I noticed that it was really quite treacherous. Thankfully, I was without my toddler at the time. And right at the edge, I mean, there's nothing between you and a sheer drop-off. Is there going to be any type of uh, fencing put up or anything? I know, notice one thing I love about it is there is none of that, and it's just wild landscape. But it's pretty 
it's a little treacherous. And there was one area, it was like almost like a sinkhole in the middle of nowhere. It was really like, whoa, where are we? This is interesting. And I was really curious of the geology of how did that happen? But that's something I'd be curious about in terms of safety and warning visitors about that. That is one of the things that we're working with the community on it. And you bring up a really interesting point also, <laughs> because there are seem to be two schools of thought. One is, as people said, you know, we like the naturalness. We like not having the burdensome of fences that we're either climbing over or having to look around and things yeah. like that. And then there's the other group that says, you know, um, we want to make sure when we're out here, we're okay. I can tell you that since we've had everybody out and hiking around, people seem to be pretty aware of where, you know, where, where some of the danger zones really are. I've actually had more people concerned about when they're out there hiking that if they come across some of the cattle that are out there, they're not sure really what to do. And so they don't know if they should leave or what. And it's like, no, 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 they're all a part of the landscape. If you look like they're coming too close because they are, I mean, people, they're, they're used to people. And so they're not really afraid of anyone. Just wave your hands and say a loud noise and odds are they will back away and go, they'll never hurt anyone. But I've actually heard more from that than people as far as the danger. But with that said, one of the things that we want to try and do too, and the city of Point Arena is working very closely with us, is put up what we're thinking may be small uh, carcinite signs just to let people know that it's dangerous if you move beyond this particular point. That way they'd be pretty innocuous, but enough that if you're coming down from a hill, you will see that there and know that, you know, maybe if I step too much further here, it might be a not such a good idea. So yeah. those are some of the things we're looking, thereby keeping the whole aesthetics of the area wide open, but still giving something out there that, you know, beyond this point, it gets a little bit dicey. And hopefully common sense is part of that, too, if you're going to access the land. <laughs> yes, definitely. Because you're right. One of the things, too, about it, and I am really appreciative of this, is when we did the – there have been a number of partners that have been involved with this whole acquisition from the beginning. And, I, and I'd like to name a few. Basically, the Wildlife Conservation Board, the arm of the California Department of Fish and Wildlife that looks at land acquisitions for the state. They provided funding. There was the Coastal Conservancy also equally involved with this and the Nature Conservancy and then U.S. Fish and Wildlife, like I'd mentioned earlier. So when we did the first phase of the acquisition, they were all the major players on, on all of that as far as for the funding sources. So state propositions 12, 13, 40, and 50, as well as then some federal funds, went into that whole acquisition. And the reason why I make that a point is because it's state money and then federal money for the whole second phase of everything, Land and Water Conservation Fund. There will never be a fee charge there. People can go out there and use it as it is and just accept the fact that it is what it is with not having to worry about a fee or anything like that. In terms of uh, the grassroots effort to get it included, we're talking about the backstory of how it did get included. It was then a presidential proclamation to add it. How did that take place? Or just going up the chain and... How did that came down as an Obama signing a thing, and there it is. Exactly, and and this really gets into what grassroots really means. And the group there in Mendocino County, they took a lot of, I guess you could say, ideas and uh, stimulation and excitement from Rebel with a Cause when all of the things happened with regard to Point Reyes National Seashore and everything else, and the grassroots effort from that, you know, from that activity. They looked at that and they said, we can do that here. There's nothing that says we can't. And you had some very key players involved, the Lighthouse Keepers Association and, again, the city of Point Arena, Congressman uh, Jared Huffman's staff, actually Congressman Mike Thompson before him. 
the reason why I mentioned that is because it was originally through going to be through Congress. In fact, there was uh, legislation. It was originally entered by Congressman Thompson, I want to say about four years ago or five years ago, to make it into a national monument at that particular point in time. But really, we only just had the Stornetta public lands. There wasn't the property to the south of Point Arena at the time. But people felt that there was still this, – this was such a key area that having some sort of designation was important. So he originally entered the legislation then. And then when they redistrict and Congressman Huffman then became the person overseeing you know, the legislation, he re-entered it again, and basically now we're looking at more or less instead of just the Stranetta lands, which were only about 1,160 acres at the time, now having actually the whole thing of 1,665 acres. So you had representatives from his staff, and again, you had even the families involved, the Stranetta family and others were very supportive. So you had no known opposition that we were aware of for any of this, which is rare when you think of designating, setting things aside, you would assume that people would be kind of concerned about that. In this particular case, no. In fact, even Congress, when the hearing was held in the um, House Resources Committee, once again, they heard absolutely no opposition to any of this. So needless to say, um, you had all these major players, the land trusts, the environmental groups, again, the local businesses and everything else, all supporting this becoming a monument. And I would say it took the better part of several years of, of constant uh, being visible with what this was. And a lot of it, too, goes to Visit Mendocino, the group out of Fort Bragg, um, a nonprofit group that really markets Mendocino County. They did a wonderful job in keeping this in the forefront of a lot of people. So we had the secretary visit, uh, Secretary Jewell, back in November. She wanted to have a town hall meeting and, and actually took her on a hike along the coast. And she was floored. And Congressman Huffman was there, as was State Senator Wes Chesbro. There was, and, and then members from the Land Trust and Public Lands Foundation and others who went on the, the hike. The thing I think that really captured it in a lot of ways, and again, this is November. In fact, it was November 8th. Uh, I remember the day well because it was my wife's birthday thinking, well, here I am out on the coast. But but we're out there and we're just behind the college property and, and on the um, new acquisition that BLM had. And we're looking out in the ocean and here are whales breaching, you know. And so Secretary Jewell, it was almost like you couldn't have asked for a nicer day and a more fantastic event than to stand there and watch this. So we watched it for a long time. Um, it just got everybody kind of all on the same page then, too. It's like, this place is special. There's no other way to describe it. This place is amazingly special. So the town hall meeting was held later that day. It started about 2 o'clock, and it was really only scheduled to go on for about an hour to an hour and a half. There were a th little over 300 people who came to the town hall meeting. And when you figure Point Arena itself is only 475 people, to have 300 there at a meeting is pretty pretty amazing. And... It was opened up, and we, we the whole opening started with a ceremony by the Manchester Band of Pomo Indians dancing and with a prayer, and it just captured everything perfectly. I guess you know, lack of a better way to call it, no one mentioned anything that um, I mean. Secretary Jewell asked, "Is there anybody who's against any of this?" No one was, and. Basically, by 4.30, where there were still people wanting to talk why they were in favor of all this, they finally more or less said, you know, we're going to have to wrap this up. We're sorry we can't hear from anyone or everyone. So, so really, that was a good clue. Then she brought that back to Washington with her. And then the process began on, I guess you could say that front, as far as having it done administratively. In the meantime, 
again, there's so many stories here. I, I could go on for <laughs> hours. So if there's anything, feel free to interrupt. But in the meantime, while all of that is happening, New York Times is out there looking to identify places to go for 2014. And what did they list third in the world but this place? That's you know, exciting. It is very exciting. So you had that being captured now in addition to what is happening back in Washington, D.C. And all of a sudden, it began to take notice in many people's eyes that this is a special place. Well, I bet you the town is thrilled. It helps with the economy, and it's a sleepy little town and not too easy to get up and around from Point Arena. So it's wonderful to have more visitors come and spend some, some money in that tiny little town. The town is very thrilled. And really, they, they had run into some hard times. You, you look at it, and, and obviously timber is no longer what, what it was at one point in time. A lot of the fishing is protected there off the coast. They needed something, and the economics that they had were centered a lot around agriculture. So now having the tourism, you know, as far as in the area, the town has gotten very vibrant. You can see it in going down the streets. I'm really shocked at when I look at how Point Arena was about a year ago and now, and just the whole dynamics and the attitude of the community is just very, very powerful as far as to be a part of. One of the things, too, I forgot to mention, it gets back to the monument, is there's gateway communities wherever you have. I'm going to pause you right there, actually, and we're going to take a break. And I'd like to come back and talk about gateway communities and as well as this event coming up on July 19th. Perfect. Thank you. So thank you. We're talking with Rich Burns from the California Coastal Monument here on Ocean Currents. We're going to take a short break and be back in a second. You're tuned to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. This is Jennifer Stock, and I'm here with Rich Burns in the studio from the California Coastal Monument. And you were about to talk, Rich, about gateway communities, which is one of the efforts within the Coastal Monument with connecting with communities along the coast and stewarding this special area of these rocks and islands and now new land up at the Snorted Lands. Can you tell us a little bit about gateway communities and... Where are they? When, when the plan was being developed, one of the key features about the plan was public involvement and public management of the rocks and islands off the coast based on the framework on how the plan was. And when you look at it again, you've got 11,000 miles of coastline there, and there's no way that an agency could really effectively see all of that all the way through. So it just became a natural that in order to really experience the monument and really involve people in the things that the monument is all about. Establishing communities that are close to where a lot of the major features are for the rocks and islands was was key. And so with that, it was through public meetings, literally starting in San Diego and ending up at um, Crescent City, meetings were held where people were brought in to talk about the aspect of management and involvement of communities and such. And some of the most I guess you could say active areas for community were actually in the Sonoma and Mendocino and Humboldt County area. For example, there were meetings held down in Bodega Bay, um, really well attended, and talking about what the monument was. A lot of it also talked about, you know, what you what was looked at upon as as 
what you could and could not do, as we talked about earlier. And then as you got into Mendocino County, you were really getting a lot of interest. And for example, the town of Point Arena at that particular meeting, I remember there must have been close to 80 people there just to find out about the monument. And then we had another one in Elk, which is only 12 miles up the coast. And we had another 80 people there and then another one in Fort Bragg. So anyway, with that said, you could see that the interest level was running really quite high. When the basically the management plan was signed and now the beginning of the gateway communities was started, the city of Point Arena was the ultimate first one to want to become a gateway community. And then Trinidad followed shortly thereafter. So those are the two longest standing gateways amongst the whole monument itself. And Really what it does is that it captures what those communities would like to see at the monument, right down from what they want to highlight about it to the brochures that are being created to how they feel they could actually take advantage of the monument to market the things that they would like to market. So really, that was it. And and at first, it kind of took some, I guess you could say, getting used to uh, on a lot of people's levels, because you have a management plan there that obviously sets kind of the sideboards and the framework. But it really became this, well, what is it that you guys would like to see? And, and you almost have to, well, it, I would say there was a lot of us kind of sort of feeling our way through, you know, as far as the process goes. And a lot of our way at the beginning was really centered around um, scientific studies, birds primarily, and then looking at where you could go watch birds, bird counts, some of the key features. And 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 I guess you could say the other part, too, with back to gateway communities is that you also had the communities and then key partners like Fish and Wildlife and California Department of Fish and Wildlife and then state parks. And so we tried then to literally button these lands together, the state parks lands and the BLM lands and such, to create, I guess you'd call it like a fabric where people could go and see the different things, experience the different things along the coast. And that then began to really start formulating what an area could look at and and provide, you know, for support. So that's kind of how the gateway communities were originally thought and pretty much how they kind of got started. So the one up in Point Arena, because I'm most familiar with that, that one and the one in Elk and Fort Bragg are the three that I've been pretty much involved with. They really wanted to highlight the lighthouse. They wanted to highlight the agricultural community as it was. They wanted to highlight basically the tie that all three of those play, historic all the way up to, you know, things as they are now. So really, we created brochures, did interpretive hikes, um, all those particular things at the very beginning to more or less show the connection that those things had. And starting, I would say, probably about two years ago, really, we began to gel, lack of a better way to call it. And and it began to – and at the same time, of course, was the legislation coming that was talking about why this place needed to be set aside. And then it became, as a community and such, it's like, how can we better let this place be known to people? And that was a lot of the focus that Point Arena had. As you move up to Elk, the community up there is really focused on the history more than anything else. You have – actually, if you were to see posters of the California Coastal National Monument, a lot of the original posters that came out were actually the rocks and islands off of the community of Elk that you would see. And they were used for the, – the rocks and islands were actually used to load ships for, for logging and to take cargo out because – the rocks and islands themselves create enough of a barrier to keep the wave action, you know, away from some of these communities. So it really allowed for easy um, historical, you know, shipping. And so they were called dog hole ports is what they were. And, yeah, so that's how these communities kind of thrived. Then you go up to Fort Bragg and the same. You had the rocks and islands off the coast. You had the larger community, timber again. 
And uh, the people there really liked the fact of the history, but they were also into the science and seeing what can be done to more or less help educate people about the importance that the ocean is to, well, basically the people there. And everybody. And, and so each place, and I guess what I want to try and highlight, and I know I'm not doing as good of a job articulating as I wished I could, each individual gateway has its own theme that they like, that the people like, and that they want to um, get out there to everyone. And that's what I think makes the gateways very, very special. No two are alike. You go up to Trinidad, and, and a lot of Trinidad there is working very closely with the Trinidad Rancheria and the tribe up there. And so a whole different feel for how that gateway is compared to the ones that we have down our way. It's really interesting because it is a great way to preserve the coastal history in terms of uh, those that settled along the coast and found its natural resources as a way to um, live on the land and to really start the economy in California in terms of all these rich products of timber and dairy and butter and among other things. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what about the uh, in Point Arena? There's a. It's. I mean, that's coastal access is tough in terms of getting on the water up north. And where are the key access points? Point Arena. People can get on the water at uh, Point Arena Cove. That is true. At Point Arena Cove, there is the harbor right there, and people do generally can go out from there through boats right there. It is also what what I learned. I I surfed a long time ago and haven't for quite a few years now. But the fact is, as I remember as a kid growing up, looking at places to go. I'm actually from Oregon, born and raised. And anyway, needless to say, everybody always knew the best surfing was down in California. What I wasn't totally aware of is that some of the best surfing, surfing, if you're not counting way out there at Half Moon Bay, is really right there at Point Arena. And so a number of people will put in surfboards right there outside of the pier, and they'll paddle out to where the waves are. And you will see them if you're on the bluffs up above. Quite a few people will be out there surfing. Or some will go out from the Garcia River and come around, which to me would be rather a challenge, but we've seen people do that as well. But I guess that's it. That's one real easy access to the water. And then another easy access to the water is actually the Garcia River itself. You can come down to it through where some of the... um, land features basically allow you a path down to where the river is. And so Minor Hole Road, which is actually a county road, but it's since gotten very overgrown, people do use that now as a hiking path to actually get out to the Garcia River, and then from there they can actually take kayaks on down. Garcia is open for fishing, but barbless hooks. So people can salmon fish coho. Mm -hmm. Where is the Garcia River again? Garcia River is north of Point Arena about, mm, I would call it, not more than maybe... Four miles. Okay, so that's just north. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Gualala River, too, actually. There's access on the river. You can get out that way as well. Correct. I noticed there's a couple of outfitters in each of these areas with kayaks and stand-up paddle boards and wonderful ways. I'm curious, actually, what the water levels are right now in the rivers. Actually, they're not too bad. They really aren't. I was over there just last week, and and the Garcia River was, was actually looking really pretty good. Well, those late rains probably helped quite a bit. Now, you were just mentioning earlier about a big event coming up in July, Discover the Coast, and this is in Point Arena. This is in Point Arena. Statewide, there are different locations that are having events throughout the year, and they began actually down south at uh, a whale of a day down at um, uh, Point Vicente. That was one of the first ones that was held. 
And each local community can sort of shape the event as they would like to see. So there was that one there, which was Whale of a Day, which had education and different vendors and things like that happening at that location. Then there was just one held over at um, in Monterey, over there, I think, at Seaside. And that one was centered more around kind of an educational theme, the schools and things. And they had people come in and talk about the different marine resources and such. Then there is another one that is to be held middle of this month, actually, in Trinidad. And the key point of that particular celebration is Trinidad Head and Trinidad Head Lighthouse is actually going to be signed over to BLM. So they're actually, and that's going to be from the Coast Guard. So that actually is a real key feature. And then in July will be the one in Point Arena. And we've been working very closely. The community is just into parties. There's no other way to describe it. (laughs) Sounds like it. So anyway, what we've actually got crafted for July 19th is from the dawn uh, up until about 9 a.m., Audubon Society, Mendocino Coast Audubon Society, wants to do birding and have different... Um, spotting scopes and things set up over and above the pier up on the bluffs to watch birds. And then starting about 9 o'clock will be themed hikes for geology, botanical resources, and then culture resources in and amongst the monument lands. And then lunch will be pretty much on your own, noon to 1, and then from about 1 o'clock until 2.30 is going to be a big dedication celebration for Discover the Coast. Uh, once again, it's going to involve uh, tribal uh, Manchester Band of Point Arena, they want to do some more dances and celebrations in that regard. The school wants to be involved, uh, charter school as well as the high school. There's others that would like to have um, different dances, different band performances, those particular things. Starting at about 3 o'clock is going to be an open house downtown. That's what the city was looking at, where different businesses are going to have different things for people to experience and see. Then Rebel with a Cause will be shown from about 4 to 5.30, and then dinner will pretty much be on your own. But starting about 7 o'clock until the sun goes down will be a sunset hike out on the public lands. Oh, nice. So it should be a fun day and a full day, and everybody's really looking forward to it. That's great. Well, are there any other big things or anything else you'd like to talk about regarding the California Coastal Monument? I have a few other announcements as we get towards the end here, but... What do you think? I would say the biggest thing that I want to make sure people are aware of is that it really does exist. It's out there. You can see it and you can experience it. And then I also want to encourage people to come up towards the Point Arena area. I mean, you figure if if the New York Times looks at this place as being the third best place in the world to go, I mean, that's saying something. So with it, you have and, – and now while it's still, I would call it fresh, lack of a better word to use, people are still just kind of discovering the – the just what it is, the charisma that the place has. So to be able to take advantage of that is great. And and the best way to take advantage, too, is to hike it. You can literally park at City Hall, like I mentioned, and go out right onto the public lands from there and go walk up to the lighthouse and back. Round trip is going to take you about, I would say, close to seven miles, you know, all the way around. But the fact of the matter is, is you're going to be out there along the bluffs, and you're going to be just in awe of all the things that you could experience and see and do. And then if you really adventurous, you can continue on up to the Garcia River. If the tide is right and low enough, you can cross the Garcia River on up Manchester State Beach all the way up to the town. Of, well, actually, not really the town, but the Irish Beach. Wow. You can so, walk the, pretty much the entire coast. Yes, you can for that That's stretch. I, actually, mm-hmm. I want to get in touch with Coast Walk and learn a little bit more about what they do, because I know that they're big into providing access and educating people about 
where people can hike along the coast. Yes, they are. And again, they've been a wonderful partner with us as well. Uh, we have a number of different NGOs that have been working with us over time, and Coastwalk has definitely been a major player, as had Audubon Society, California Native Plant Society. Sierra Club has been also an incredible player there. And, and then again, the land trusts have been just spectacular as well. Now, one more question, actually, before we get going is most of, I mean, since it's an entire state of California, the entire coast, and there's four, three national marine sanctuaries along the coast, the Channel Islands is off on the Channel Islands. Are there, is the Coastal Monument go off around the Channel Islands as well? Yes, it does. Oh, it does. So anything in the state of California? Oh, actually, the Channel, I'm sorry, I was thinking of uh, the Farallons. The Channel Islands, I don't believe it goes out that far for the Channel Islands. But what what I think you're, you're leading up to, and not to immediately cut to the chase, but you have different portions of the monument that are overseen by different field offices. So as you go from Oregon border down to uh, basically north of Fort Bragg, Man, uh, McCarricker State Park, that's actually overseen by the Arcata office. And then you hit from McCarricker down to San Francisco, that's me. Then you go south of San Francisco down to, oh golly, um, below Carmel. That's actually seen out of the Hollister area. And then you've got Bakersfield overseen um, Pedras Blancas and um, the lighthouse there. And then you've got uh, South Coast overseen literally from Mexico up to um, Santa Barbara, I believe. So, yeah, so five field offices. You do actually have a manager who oversees the entire stretch of the monument. He's fairly new. He's only been actually with BLM for just a couple of months, and he's actually stationed in Monterey. Right. Okay. Well, how about a website for people to learn more and figure out how to get out to some of these places? Is there a website for the California Coastal Monument? There is. And if you were to get onto the main BLM web website and basically just search for it, you can get there as well. Or I would say the easiest way would be to just go to the individual field offices where we can get more specifics as to what that office has to offer. And so for us, of course, I think it's www.blm slash dot gov and i think that'll get you there easiest way obviously is always google i'm Googling. discovering that <laughs> so that will help you for the locations that you're interested in great well rich thank you so much for coming in today and talking about the monument it's been really interesting and the whole time i've just been visualizing all these rocks and islands because i just love the stretch of coast and enjoying those special features that make california so special it really does. And, and I think it also, to me, is a reflection, the whole monument on the grassroots efforts that people can do and what you can succeed at. And, and to me, that's how I look at it. Well, I for folks still tuning in here, you're listening to Ocean Currents. And I just have a few more announcements before we wrap up the show and two big ones. Um, if you haven't seen the news yet, well, uh, very much in line with the California Coastal Monument out in the ocean, the National Marine Sanctuaries have a proposal in to expand the Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuaries all the way up to just north of Point Arena. This is a proposal out there right now, and this is a public comment period, and we're really seeking people to get engaged and participate in this opportunity to participate in this public process should this expansion take place and what's in it. We really would like people to read up on the documents and come to these hearings. You can go to either cordellbank.noaa.gov or fairlawns.noaa.gov and on both of the home pages are links to the information regarding all the documents and how to comment online. People can also comment by writing a letter to Maria Brown, the Sanctuary Superintendent at the Gulf of the Farallones National Marine Sanctuary. 
And there are also three public hearings, one of them coming up really soon in Sausalito, May 22nd. And all again, all this information is online at both Cordellbank and Farallons.noaa.gov. Very exciting time, and that p- comment period goes till June 30th, 2014. So please take a look at that. This is a pretty big thing for these National Marine Sanctuaries. We've been learning all about the California Coastal Monument and a lot about the Point Arena area, the Stornetta headlands that were added to the Coastal Monument this year. One of the only coastal areas that is part of the monument. Most of the monument is rocks and islands that are a little hard to get to. So this is a really exciting addition and a wonderful place to explore the coastal wildlife on this amazing stretch of coastline in the Pacific Ocean. Thanks again for tuning in today. Ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month between 1 and 2 p.m. And I have a podcast. If you're interested in catching up on the past shows from the last eight years, come to cordellbank.noaa.gov and you can catch up on lots and lots of topics, different interviews we've had over the years. Thanks for tuning in and have a great afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.